title for the short little message tonight is called uh, Five Principles for More Effective Bible Reading. Uh, so this is a little bit more of a topical discussion. This is not expositional per se. We are not going to be going through an entire passage of Scripture and pulling it out. Rather, we're going to look at a, a, a few different passages as we try to think about some examples of things that we could uh, think about, do, know, uh, so that when we read our Bible, we get a little bit more out of it. Uh, so I'll be saying a lot more about that as we work our way through the message. But uh, obviously reading the Bibles is one of the um, key things that we must do, one of the cornerstones of the Christian faith. We, and we want to get as much out of it as we possibly can when we do it. So uh, that's our goal here. But as, we are, as we're starting here, I have a little bit of an introduction. So I'm going to show you a series of slides here. These are pictures. And I just want you to be uh, kind of shout them out quickly. Some are easy. Some might not be quite so easy of uh, items, they're tools. Just shout out there, somebody tell me what the tool is and then also what the tool is used for. What is its purpose? So, let's go first here. What do we have here? <laughs> well, that's interesting to have that one first. <laughs> okay, wh what'd you say back there, Larry? That's correct. This is, this is for a car battery. Uh, when you change your battery out, the battery sometimes gets a lot of buildup of corrosion. And so you can't, it's a little bit hard to tell, but it's got, it's got little scrubby things here on the top. You can use those to, to scrub out the whole part or the eyelet. And then on the bottom, it's just rounded and it, and it allows you to put it over the terminals and you can scrub that off too. So obviously you want your battery terminal to be clean so that you get a good connection when you change your battery out. And as I said, a lot of corrosion builds up. So <laughs> kudos to you. If you've never changed out a battery, you might not know what that is. Okay, let's, let's move on to the second one. Okay, it's a launch. Okay, I only, I only heard, there's something going on there. I only heard women. Did, did, any, of the, did any of the guys know what this was? <laughs> right, because where do your clothes go, guys? On the floor. That's right. Yeah, very good. Okay, so no, that... <laughs> It's, it's a hamper or a laundry basket. This is where your clothes go. It is a tool. It does have an important function, guys, all of us, myself included, right? So um, in any case, okay, let's move on to the, uh, let's move on to the next one. Okay, what is this? Wrench, cutters, and I don't know what this means, but... <laughs> Anyone for sure know what this is? Okay, this is, a, this is a combination wire stripper and cutter. So the top part there, actually, you, you set the adjustment, the size, and if you need to strip wire, uh, it's super easy. All you do is kid it. It cuts the wire, the wire insulation, but not the wire, and strips it back for you so it's easy. You just pull it right off. Super helpful if you ever have to uh, do electrical wiring stuff. Um, and then down below here, it's a separate stripper. You can do it manually or you can cut the wire. So... Uh, yeah, I, I, I bought this when I was doing some wiring about a year ago. It really helped. Okay, that was a little tougher. Okay, next one. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, we, you, you could call it a box cutter. Uh, I think technically it's called a utility knife, but what's the difference? It's not necessarily for cutting boxes. It's for cutting anything. It's just a sharp razor. Okay, next one. Okay. 
I think the guys gave up. They don't want, they don't want to be wrong anymore. I'm just hearing the ladies now. <laughs> okay. Some, somebody said cement. It's not a sander. This is actually a, a concrete float. They call it a float. So it's used to, uh, once the concrete has been poured, it's used to smooth out the concrete. Right? Okay, because, all right. So anyway, concrete float. Very good. Next one. A Bible? Whose Bible is that? No. Okay, this is, this, this is not the who we call a directory. This is a Bible. So, I ask a question, though. So, we were asked the same question. What is it? We know it's a Bible. That's the tool. What is it used for? Hmm? Guidance? Instruction manual? To produce fruit? What, yeah, what does it actually do? <laughs> Multi-purpose tool. I thought about putting a, a Swiss Army knife up there, but I was like, ah, oh, that's it. Um, what does it actually do? Like, how does it make a difference in your life? So it, with every tool, right, whether it's a knife or a hammer or a battery terminal cleaner or whatever it is, it, they all have a really important function, but you really do need to know how to use them. And you, you want to know how to use them in the most effective way. So everyone knows how to use a hammer. Everybody knows how to use a knife. But there are sometimes little techniques and things that you can learn. Maybe somebody can show you or you can learn that can help make you more efficient and effective with the tool. And it's really no different with the Bible. The Bible is, uh, of course, it's a book. You can just read through the Bible and gain a tremendous amount of information, knowledge out of it about who God is, about what he's like primarily about what you are supposed to do in light of what you read, right? That's sort of the application part of it. But if you uh, follow a few little tips and tricks and maybe some hints, uh, you, you might be able to get a little bit more out of this tool, which is, uh, I don't think it's at all an exaggeration to say, the greatest tool God ever gave to mankind, right? Because it reveals to us what God is like and therefore what we must do in light of what we know about him. So, <coughs> excuse me. Um, let's, uh, let's go ahead. We'll, we'll, five simple principles, and then we'll have a couple things at the end here uh, to kind of final thoughts to wrap it up. Principle number one. So these will all start with read. And here's the last part. Read the Bible as a love letter. This is a principle, again, these are principles to help guide you as you read through Scripture to get more out of it. So read through the Bible as a love letter. And we're going to look at Isaiah 55. So if you could, uh, while you're kind of jotting down some notes, if you could also just uh, fairly quickly there flip over to Isaiah 55. <coughs> we'll look at the whole passage. It's not a terribly long passage. None of these are too long. So Isaiah chapter 55. Now I'm going to, I'm just going to share with you a little bit of context here, which is a <laughs> actually a point that comes a little bit later, but we'll share with you a little bit of context when Isaiah is, by the time Isaiah is writing, we're now maybe a couple hundred years after Solomon. The last time that the kingdom was really united, the, the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes were united. At this point already, Israel is in a pretty severe spiritual downward decline. It's, a, it's becoming a spiral. Now, it's ultimately going to end up with the destruction of the northern kingdom, which Isaiah would have witnessed in his lifetime. The destruction of the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes by the nation of Assyria, and then, only about 140 years later, the destruction of the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin 
by the nation Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. So the nation was going to be destroyed, but God wasn't simply content to leave, it in, leave them in a downward spiral. And so what do you have? You have throughout the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Well, Ezekiel's a little bit later, but you have God sending messengers to the nation of Israel to say, hey, guys, you got to amend your ways. You need to change. If you continue on like this, it will result in your absolute downfall and destruction. Remember, the children of Israel had made a covenant with God. God said at Mount Sinai to them, do you agree to do all the things that I have commanded in my law? Will you agree to do everything that I say? And the nation of Israel said, yes, absolutely. We will obey all of your covenants. We want to receive the double blessing. And hopefully we don't get the double cursing if we don't do what's right, right? But so they all agreed. <clears throat> Nevertheless, um, after the days of Solomon, it really started during the days of Solomon, uh, the kingdom begins a, a downward spiritual decline. Um, however, throughout the prophets, it's not just warnings of destruction. It's also over and over again in the prophets, you have the, these statements given by God that are statements of his love for his people. Uh, guys, I love you. I just, I want you to change, but realize that I will not turn an eye, a blind eye, to what you're doing, but I want you to change. So he implores his people to seek after him and to change their ways. So Isaiah chapter 55, let's just, uh, I'll, I'll read it if you follow along. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's free. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. In other words, I'll make an everlasting covenant with you like I made with King David. <clears throat> Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee because of the Lord thy God, and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, and he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down, and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut, uh, cut off. <clears throat> so as you think about what God is saying to his people here, right? I mean, you can see God is really just imploring with them. He's pleading with them to return unto him. Now, 
One of the things that's really helpful to do, and some, this is a little bit off topic, but it's certainly something that needs to be shared in this message, is uh, think about a few questions, or, or think of questions. Let, let some questions arise in your mind as you begin to read the passage. One of the most helpful things to learning is a good question. So you read through something and you might say, I'm not sure exactly what that means. Or you may read through something and say, that seems like it's out of the blue. Is there some connection somewhere else? Uh, asking a really good question is incredibly helpful uh, in terms of, of pulling deeper understanding and deeper meaning out of any material. So <clears throat> if you are not asking yourself questions as you read God's word, uh, you read something, it's, you, know, it's, you know how easy it is to just run right over a text of scripture and not have any real thought go into it. But if you're not asking your questions when you read God's word um, and you're not kind of going below the surface, you won't be mining those, those important nuggets that will really stay with you and, and could potentially really impact you. You really won't see the full richness of God's word. So it's really good to ask questions. So just, these are just a couple simple questions here. Right? They should be printed in your notes. So notice question number one. Think about this. What does this passage tell me about what God is like? Now, that's a question that you could apply to pretty much any passage you read, right? What does this passage tell me about what God is like? So just pose that to you for a second. What, what do you think? What do you see about God in here? What words come to me? You can say it in a word, a short sentence. Mercy, merciful. God is merciful. What, what, what sets that off in the passage? Do you, do you have a, a verse in mind? Just, you know, it was in there, right? It's actually mentioned in a number of different ways. Um, <clears throat> any, anything else? What else, do you, what else do you hear about, see about God in there? Yeah. He's kind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, God could choose to judge a sinner right away. But God is patient, and he's very kind. Provider. Yes. He is the one who takes care of all of our needs, not simply f physically, right? So which he mentions in this passage, right? He is he's the one that brings the rain down from heaven and makes sure that it waters the seed so that the seed grows and people have abundance of food. But he's also there spiritually. He's the provider spiritually. Anything else? <coughs> yeah. He's loving, absolutely. And that's kind of, that's the point we're on right now. We see here, God doesn't have to do this. He doesn't have to come to his people and implore them to do what's right. He's already given them the conditions of the covenant. And yet, he does it anyway because he loves people. So, great, great thoughts. Look at question number two. Here's just an example. Those of you who are parents, how can you better relate to what God is like knowing what it's like to train your own children? Okay? How many of you, like the first time you told your kids an instruction, they just did it forever on from then on? Right? That, that happens all the time, right? Yeah, you just usually have to tell them once, and boom, it's done. Right? Change, complete change of heart, complete change of behavior. Okay, how many of you not had that experience? <laughs> okay, I, pr pretty much any parent knows that this is not the way it works. You come back to them, and you, you tell them over and over again. Why? Because you love them. Because if they don't change and they don't get the message at some point, you know it's going to result in pain in their lives. So you're going to do what it takes, right? Even if it means you have to severely inconvenience yourself, you, you need them to get that message. So, um, For those without children, think about what it's like to try to help or instruct those family members or loved ones who just don't want to do the right thing. 
Have you ever tried to give somebody advice? Hey, look, if you keep doing this, you know it's gonna lead to it's gonna lead to bad things. And and they just like it doesn't matter. It's like you can't get through to them, right? But why do you keep trying, or why do you try, or why do you keep praying for them? Because you love them. Because you know that if they don't change, if their heart doesn't change, it's going to result in disaster. So, <clears throat> um, God is not injured when human beings fail to keep up their part of a, guard, of, of a bargain. God's not failed when humans don't keep their part of a covenant. He just, he loves us, and he wants us to make right choices. Because he wants us to experience the fulfillment and the joy that having a proper relationship with, with, with him will bring. He, again, everything in God's word, guys, you, you know this, right? But I'm just going to say it. Everything in God's word is for your benefit. It's for your joy. It's for your fulfillment. So that you can live the kind of life that God wants you to live. And we know this. But we still stray anyway, right? And so somebody has to teach us and we have to teach others, but we've got to stick at it. And God sticks at it in his word. Now, not only does he stick at it in his word here, he keeps coming back to the nation of Israel with this, but he does this in each of our lives as well, right? He doesn't quit on us. So if you read the Bible as God's love letter to you and you recognize that everything that he said in his word is because he wants you to be in a right relationship with him and have the fullness and the joy that you should have, I think it makes a difference really makes a difference because that's really what the Bible is, right? It's, it's been said before, the Bible is God's love letter to mankind. All right, so <clears throat> read the Bible as a love letter, number one. Number two, you should read thoughtfully. Read thoughtfully. And the passage of scripture here that we're gonna take a quick look at is Genesis 5, 21 through 31, but also 7 through 11. Let me say that one more time. Genesis 5, 21 through 31, and then we're going to quickly jump over to seven verse, chapter 7, verse 11. <laughs> Excuse me, sorry about that. My throat is still a little bit. <coughs> There's nothing more annoying than sucking up snot into a microphone. Sorry about that. <coughs> oh, maybe there's a few things more annoying. Okay. Um, in this passage, here's, here's the idea behind this passage. We must go into each reading session with a discovery mindset. What are we going to discover today? Now, this can be true even if you've read a passage many, many times over. The idea is, what am I going to discover today? I want something from the Lord as I read through today. So we're going in as a detective, would look for significant clues, trying to put things together. So this requires us to be in the moment. You've got to really be paying attention. You've got to be mentally present while you read. Now, everyone in here, I'm sure, has had the experience of being mentally absent. Um, when something's going on that you're supposed to be paying attention to. Um, guys, especially, we, we kind of have this trouble with our wives sometimes. Um, not that women can't have it too, so, you know, we want to be equal, but guys, we, we really tend to do struggle at this. Um, and we figured out little techniques to kind of make it seem like we're, we're listening. So, so <laughs> I don't know them. <laughs> so, we're... <laughs> We're in the middle of a thought. We're in the middle of something that's going on. And we know that we're kind of, sp- you know, wife comes in and says, hey, you know, we got this thing going on and we're going to talk about this and hey, I need to share with you some information. And so we're like, ugh, ugh. But I'm really in the middle of a thought. 
And so it's, or I'm really in the middle of something. So, you know, we, we, get, we get good at kind of like nodding our heads and then we'll listen to like every 10th word and go, oh yeah, so-and-so, such and such. Uh, or, or, you know, just, but come to the end of the conversation, we're not going to remember at all what we've just supposed, what we've just been told, what we're supposed to remember. Because we're just not in the moment. There's something going on distracting. So Bible reading can very much be this way, especially some of the portions of Scripture which, let's be honest, are a little bit harder to dig out. You know, pastors mentioned before the, the book of Numbers, which is a long lists and the laws recounted in the book of Numbers and the descriptions of the temple and, and so on, or the tabernacle and so on and so forth. So it, it can be a challenge, but you've got to stick with it. So let's take, for example, uh, this passage in Genesis. I, I think this is a good one. Uh, so Genesis chapter 5, maybe I should turn there too. So Genesis chapter 5, starting in verse 21. Get ready. And Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and 5 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. And Methuselah, Methuselah lived 100 year, 180 and 7 years and begat Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he begot Lamech 780 and 2 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were 960 and 9 years and he died. And Lamech lived 180 and 2 years and begat a son and called his name Noah, saying, this same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. And Lamech lived after he begat Noah 590 and five years and begat sons and daughters. In all the days of Lamech were 770 and seven years, and he died. Uh, let me read verse 32. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So, you read this passage, it's just, it's a genealogy, right? It's just a list of ages and, and children who were born. Um, <coughs> but think about Methuselah for a moment. What's Methuselah famous for? <laughs> yeah, he lived to be 969, but what's special about that, at least in terms of the Bible? Yeah, he's, he's actually the oldest person mentioned in the Bible. Uh, so as far as we know, I mean, he, not necessarily the oldest person ever, but as far as we know, in the scriptures, Methuselah is the oldest. So he's 900, he lived to be 969 years old. That's really, I mean, that's unfathomable to us. Like, how much could you learn in 960 years, right? Or how many dumb things could you do for some people, maybe? But um, probably not that many. <laughs> but um, imagine how much you could experience if you were a follower of God. Um, and I think for a Christian, you might expect to draw very close to God. You might expect to uh, maybe receive just a lot of interesting things. You would know so much about the world, uh, having lived faithfully for God for so long. But was Methuselah a godly man? It's an interesting question to think about here. So how old was Methuselah when Lamech was born? Take a look at your text real quick. How old was Methuselah when Lamech was born? 187. He was 187 when Lamech was born. How old was Lamech when Noah was born? 182. So combine those. What's the total? 
369, okay, 369. So we'll, we'll tuck that away for a moment. He was 369. Uh, so that, that, that those two combined were 369. So if we do some quick math, oh, actually, how old was Noah when the flood came? Six hundred. Noah was six hundred when the flood came. Now, doing some quick math, how old was Methuselah when the flood came? Nine hundred sixty-nine. The flood came in the nine hundred sixty-ninth year of Methuselah's life. That means that Methuselah died the same year as the flood. Was Methuselah's death a result of the flood? <laughs> Or did he perhaps die before the flood? Uh, was he a godly man like his father Enoch? Because not everybody in this line was especially godly. Was he a godly man like his father Enoch, or did he die in the flood? Now, I'm going to tell you this. We're not gonna, I don't think we're not going to be able to answer this question because we don't know. But a thoughtful reading of the text brought the question to mind. Wait a minute. Methuselah was alive in the year the flood came. So just even some of the more mundane passages of Scripture that you might not take a second look at. Read thoughtfully. Think about this. Think about the years as they, as they go through, and you might just uncover some things uh, as you really pray and, and think about it that uh, you'd never noticed before, and they might make a difference. So um, work to keep track of things as you actually read through. If you want to take notes, that's a fantastic thing to do while you read Scripture. Because if, you're, if you jot down a note, uh, of course, just as a teacher, right, we know that, People who jot down notes, remember, it's something like three or four times as much material as people who just listen and don't write down any notes. So it really makes a difference. It can really help you as you try to keep track of things moving through a passage. And where this is really especially helpful is in the narrative passages of Scripture. So like the Gospels, tracking through the life of Jesus and the things that he did and, and the order in which things occurred could be really valuable. Okay. So that's, that's point number two. Read thoughtfully. Really be in the moment when you're, when you're reading. Point number three. <clears throat> read prayerfully. For, this, uh, for an example, for this, uh, this concept here, let's go to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. All right, so let me, before, before I start reading, let me say this. Um, it's the Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit that aids us in the understanding of Scripture, right? We call that principle illumination. As we read, God enlightens our hearts and our minds to not only understand the text, but understand what it means and how it applies to our lives. Um, the Bible says the Spirit reveals to us the deep things of God. That's 1 Corinthians 2.10. It's the Spirit that reveals to us the deep things of God. Thus, with, it, without communication between ourselves and the Holy Spirit, we simply won't grasp what we need to. And so uh, prayer here, I, I'm going to take you, this passage is a little bit unusual. Let me set this up a little, little bit here. Um, Daniel chapter 9 is actually a very famous Bible passage to Bible prophecy buffs. Anyone who knows Bible prophecy and spends a lot of time studying it knows Daniel chapter 9 because at the end of Daniel chapter 9 is the 70 weeks prophecy. It's where we learn uh, uh, some really important connections that help us make better sense of the book of Revelation. <clears throat> so 
So in this 70 weeks prophecy, God decrees that there will be 70 weeks, which end up being sevens of years, 70 times seven, 490 years. And so we, we, there, there, that's a whole other topic that uh, goes on and on. But before you get to the 70 weeks prophecy, you have this really interesting prayer by Daniel. So let's, let's read it together real quick here. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Remember, God had not been keeping the Sabbath, or the, I'm sorry, the people had not been keeping the Sabbath in the land. And so that was one of the reasons God was going to punish the people by taking them out of their land. The land would stay desolate for 70 years, which is sort of their past due payment that they should have been keeping the Sabbaths in the land. And he was going to get that back from them by taking them out of the land, but then eventually they would come back into their homeland. And they would, in a sense, sort of a start over, a fresh start. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and I made confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments, we have sinned. We have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces as to this day. To the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and unto all Israel that are near and that are far off, through all the countries whither thou hast driven them because of their trespass, that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings and to our princes and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord, our God, belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Neither have we obeyed the voice of our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, even by departing, that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. And he hath confirmed his words which he spake against us and against our judges that judged us by bringing upon us a great evil. For under the whole heaven hath not been done as hath been done upon Jerusalem. <clears throat> as it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil is come upon us, yet we made not our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand thy truth. Therefore the, hath the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works, which he doeth, for we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, thou hast brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and hast gotten thee renowned as, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now therefore, therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications and cause thy face to shine upon the sanctuary that is desolate for the Lord's sake. And I'm going to stop reading there for the sake of time, but Daniel goes on a little bit longer and he just says, we have nothing, we have no reason whatsoever to beg for your mercy. And yet, Lord, Please have mercy. 
We know you're a merciful God. And we know, now, where's Daniel when he writes this? Daniel's not in his homeland. He's, he's far away. So um, <clears throat> Daniel just cries out to the Lord for help here. And what I want to talk about when I say read prayerfully, it's, don't misunderstand, God's probably not going to send you an angel. Actually, what happens here later in the passage is that after Daniel prays this great humble prayer, um, God sends the angel Gabriel to reveal to him to reveal to Daniel what's going to happen in the future. And, and this is meant to be God's way of, of, of informing Daniel, look, I haven't forgotten about you guys. I'm going to bring you back into the land. It's just a matter of time. Um, but notice how Daniel, I, and I want you to think about the way Daniel prays as he asks God to, to have mercy and to reveal. First, he has been reading scripture, right? He said, I was reading in the books. That's, he's talking about the law. He's, he's reading what he has available to him of the scriptures. Um, what, is, what does he pray for first? The very first thing he prays for. In uh, chapter 9, verse 1, so I'll, I'll, I'll just say it here. He prays for forgiveness. Lord, it, no, was Daniel the worst sinner in Israel? Of course not. It's really the fathers, his ancestors, that, it, that had... Uh, brought about destruction on the nation. But nevertheless, Daniel has a deep measure of humility. And he just says, Lord, we sinned. It's, it's, it's us. And he puts himself with his people. So his attitude is humility. And receives just what he requests from the Lord. Because he prays with a deep spirit of humility. So humility is a key concept when it comes to reading God's word and understanding what God wants you to know. And again, we read this earlier, right? God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And so we need the Spirit, and we need to be humble and willing to receive what the Lord has. But here's a good rule for praying. Praying that God would help you understand Scripture. So you need to pray before you read, or it would be a good, let me say it this way, it would be a good idea to pray before you read, pray while you are reading, and pray after you've read. That God would help you not only to understand what you've read, but also to give you the strength and the wisdom to apply it. So prayer, reading the Bible, bathed in prayer, they're really the two go together. They shouldn't be separated. We should always go to the word of God with a spirit of prayer. <clears throat> now, let me say one more thing here. When you read the Bible, gaining theological knowledge is good. Gaining knowledge about God is good. But going away a changed person is even better. Going away knowing what you need to do and doing it is even better. So praying, praying for God's help in that can certainly help. All right, number four. Let's move on here. Uh, sake of time. <clears throat> we need to read imaginatively. Read with the imagination. Now this relates a little bit to kind of spicing up your scripture reading sessions. So uh, to kind of illustrate this, well, the, the passage we're going to look at is John 2, 1 through 11. So John 2, 1 through 11. Um, but before we, we read this uh, passage together, think about this. Uh, kids have amazing imaginations, right? So... Whether you work with kids, you've been around kids, you have kids, you know that uh, small children especially have 
really, really vivid, really healthy imaginations. So there, and I'm thinking of an uh, example of my own children. So there are many games that Zane and Anya like to play together. But one of the funniest, one of the most intriguing to me is Beat Bobby Flay. So whenever we have uh, a meal and we're all sitting down for a meal together, because we watch the show, we watch it, you know, fairly frequently, they sit down and they decide they're going to play Beat Bobby Flay, but they're going to be the judges for the meal, right? So, I mean, seriously, I could be doing macaroni and cheese. Like, it took me, like, you know, 10 minutes to get this thing thrown together and slap a plate in front of them if, if we happen to be on a really busy night, right? So, and, and, and <laughs> they'll look at each other and Anya will say to Zane, okay, now, take the first dish before you. Okay, so then they, they have the first dish before you. And, and what do you think? And so, Zane will say something like, oh, yeah, I, the, the, the cheese sauce was really good, uh, but it was a little bit salty. And so, you know, and they'll just go on like this for like 10 minutes, just critiquing the food. <laughs> and they're like, they're like, what do you mean? You know, once in a while, you like, you, it gets you like, what are you talking about? Like, oh, no, we're just playing, Dad. We're just playing. So um, <laughs> blame craft anyway, but anyway. Um, <clears throat> so they really have vivid, vivid imaginations. But somewhere along the way, I don't know, it, maybe we get so busy with life or we just, it becomes a rote habit of reading the scripts. Like we know we're supposed to read it and so we've got to get it done one way or, you know, one way or another. That we begin to lose a little bit of that, of that imagination. Um, we stop flexing those muscles, those imagination muscles. So to get the most, most out of your Bible reading, you really need to word God's word, read God's word with imagination. So I, I think there's a quotation there in your notes. Uh, the, the gentleman from whom I adapted a lot of this material, Hendricks comments on this principle. Re look at what he says. If we always read scripture in the same way and in the same place, time after time, we run the risk of making it into a routine exercise with little interest or excitement. What a tragedy, especially when we consider that history's greatest works of art and music have been created by people who learned to read the Bible imaginatively. And they wanted to create things that glorified God, that demonstrated the beauty and the majesty and the holiness of what God is like because they were inspired by what they read, right? Great paintings, great music, great buildings. You go right on down the line. God has inspired some of the most amazing, incredible things that mankind has ever been able to generate. And yet, you know, sometimes we do, right? And so I'm not, this is not meant to be... Uh, overly harsh towards you, but we sit there and we just, it's like, oh man, I got to get through this passage, right? Because <laughs> I got to stay on track. Um, now let's read John chapter 2, 1 through 11 real quick. Um, and this is the, the marriage at Cana. In the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, they have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. It's not time for me to reveal myself to Israel yet. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there they were set there, and there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made into wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when the men have well drunk, 
than that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. So maybe just a couple questions here to think about that might kind of prick our imaginations and our conscience as we read through this. Question number one, put yourself in the shoes of the groom and the bride or their parents. So just imagine your, yourself being there. Now, you may not know what kind of clothes they were wearing or what, 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 what everything looked like. That's okay. You can imagine it, right? How would you feel if you ran out of juice? How would you feel? Would you be embarrassed to toast with water? Like, what are we going to do? Are we going to get water? Are we just going to have them toast with water? They're going to sit around drinking water now? I mean, this is supposed to be our gift to them, right? And so anyone who's ever had anything go wrong at a marriage ceremony, I, I don't know if any of you have, not to dredge up any <laughs> uh, bad memories necessarily, but uh, if you ever had something go wrong in a marriage, I mean, that's the time you want to be the most special. You want everything just so, especially the ladies, right? It's supposed to be perfect. It's supposed to be perfect. And so for something like this to go wrong, it's a major source of embarrassment. How would you feel? So putting yourself in their shoes, right? Using your imagination. Question number two. Although embarrassing, it's not exactly like anyone would have died without more grape juice. So what does this say about Jesus' concern for us, even in the small things? You know what? Jesus was told this, and he said, you know, it's not really my time to reveal myself to Israel yet, so I'm going to do this kind of quietly. I, I don't want to make a big thing out of this, but look, I don't, I don't, want, these pe- I mean, I don't want these people to go away no, embarrassed or have, have their wedding feast sort of ruined, so to speak. And so Jesus goes ahead and takes care of the need for them. Uh, what does it say about God, God's uh, involvement even in the little details of our life? Um, do you have little details throughout the day that you can just call out to God for? Question number three. What do you think went through the bride and groom's mind as a new bunch of juice just appeared from nowhere? I think about this. You're like, we're out of, we're out of juice? And then, and then soon along comes a guy, oh, here's some more juice. Oh, great, we must have ordered extra. I, I, don't, I don't know what they were thinking, right? But have you ever received a similar blessing from God just out of the blue? Like, I don't know where this came from. I don't, it may even be a relatively small thing. But it's an opportunity to think about what God is like. Does God care about your life in the, in the small things? And, and so as you read through a passage, you put yourself in the shoes of the people. You think through what they were going through. Because they're human beings too, just like you, right? It's easy to forget this as we read through the Bible. You know, Paul was a superman. Um, Elijah was a superman. No, they weren't. They experienced the same things you do. And if you put yourself in their shoes, you'll realize that you're really not so different. Uh, So reading the Bible with imagination can definitely add some zest. Let's look at number five now. Number five is read the Bible contextually. So the passage we'll look at this is pretty short. Try to keep this one short. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Again, read the Bible contextually. Now, getting in some Bible reading is definitely better than no Bible reading at all, but it's really valuable to read larger chunks of the Bible at at once, if you can, at different times in your reading. Just go through a a pretty large section, and it helps you to make some connections that you might not see any other way. Um, While this may not necessarily be as as helpful in the Proverbs or in the Psalms, although it'd still be beneficial because you can see themes come up over and over again, it's really critical to understanding the historical narrative 
portions of Scripture. Those portions of Scripture, they're telling us histories of God's people and the way he works throughout those, those, those periods of time. Um, <clears throat> so consider the following passage, Matthew 18, 15 through 20, as an example of how we might break down the Scripture into small parts and therefore end up missing something that's actually pretty important. So Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. That's an important statement right there. In the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Verse 17, and if you shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if you neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you, that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now, verse 20 is often used kind of in isolation by itself to reference the fact that Jesus is among us. So, like, when, whenever we gather together as a few people, you know, we know Jesus is in our midst. Um, <clears throat> so if, we, if we're just meeting together for church or if it's just for prayer, two or three, uh, and Sometimes it's used in a negative way, by the way. Sometimes people use this to say, well, I don't really need to go to church. I don't really need to be a member of a church because, um, you know, if, you know if me and a group of friends, even if we're just, you know, over the internet or whatever, or, you know, on chat, we're just video chat or whatever, we're just getting together, then the Lord's in the midst of us. And so that means the Lord is blessing what we're doing. But that's, that's a mistaken view of what this passage actually means. Um, now, it is true that Jesus is with us everywhere, right? But that's true all the time, Correct? I mean, we can go to Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, for example, and it says, Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So Jesus, because Jesus is God, he's omnipresent. He can be everywhere at once, and that's always true. It doesn't matter if you're by yourself or you're in church or you're on a video chat. He's always with us. Um, so that is always true. Uh, but this passage is actually talking about church discipline. So notice verse 16. If confronting a, sin, a sinning brother alone is ineffective, what are you to do? Bring, <laughs> bring, bring a friend, bring a brother, bring somebody that you can trust, or two of them. This principle, by the way, goes back to the law of Moses, um, which taught that it is required that two or three witnesses establish any legal matter. That's mentioned in, in a couple places in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 19.5, for example. In order to establish an issue, you have to have two or three witnesses. So Jesus is basically teaching the same principle here when it comes to church discipline. Two or three witnesses shall establish a matter of church discipline. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I, there am I in their midst, really means when the church has to conduct an issue of discipline and when it has to deal with a sinning brother, if and, and, and you know sometimes it could be a question of what's really going on. Maybe the person who's in sin is not not fully confessing, and the people who, uh, who are trying to confront them, you know, they're not entirely sure. Where two or three witnesses are gathered together, they're able to come to a, a, a conclusion that, in a sense, the Lord will approve of. So if we conduct matters this way, Jesus' approval is given to the ruling. So church discipline, by the way, is an incredibly important tool 
given to the church to maintain its godly testimony. Super important. Um, and that's what's really meant in verse 20. The idea of how to confront people when they are caught up in sin. Um, so, five thoughts. Reading the Bible contextually can really make a difference in our, in our understanding of Scripture and can prevent us from falling into some of those pitfalls. Now, <clears throat> a couple final thoughts here. Um, the Holy Spirit aids us. As we read, we mentioned that previously. But if a person is not a believer, if they have not repented and confessed their sins, they're not able to understand the Scriptures in the way God wants them to. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. So an unsaved person cannot understand the Bible the way God wants them to. It cannot make a difference in their life like it should. They can understand facts. They can understand how long Moses lived. They can understand all those things in the Bible, but they cannot see the true meaning behind it. So as a word to us here, if anyone here is, is unsaved, in order to, to take that first step, there has to be a confession of sin. There has to be belief in the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. Because without that, there's no spirit. And without the spirit, there's no understanding. The Bible will always be a dark book. Secondly, uh, a believer should never, ever go away from a reading session unsure of what God wants him to do. It, it, you need to make this a goal. Don't go away from a reading saying, Oh, that was really interesting. That was really, really unique or really fun. But you don't know what God has commanded you to do as a result of that. This gets to the application part. Every time we read scripture, uh, we should go away with a thought, perhaps a conviction, I, I know God is telling me to do this. I know I need to make a change. Um, and so application is super critical. Um, James 1.22 says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Similarly, Jesus himself said in John 14.15, if you love me, what comes next? Keep my commandments. How do you show, how do you demonstrate the fact that you really do love God? You have a desire to keep his commandments and you do it. That's how you show you're a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Um, the true hallmark of proper reading of Scripture is a change in behavior to become more like Christ. Um, I, I tell my classes this at school, so I think Van has heard some, some iteration of this, some variation of this. You're better off reading one verse and actually applying it than reading a thousand and making no change. Um, but isn't it better to read good sections of Scripture, chunks of Scripture, and then go away a changed person? So we want to do both. We want to both read the Bible but we want to go away knowing exactly what we need to change or what we need to do. Um, well, I hope these things have been encouraging to you. I hope uh, I even if you just take, look, there's five of them. Even if you just take one now and then, uh, you're not going to probably change them all at once, right? <laughs> even I struggle with some of them frequently. And, uh, you know, I'm teaching the lesson here. But if we keep some of these things in mind, it, it can help us as we, as we read through the scripture.